Welcome to the New Age Sage Podcast. Today's guest is Crystal Lampett. She is a licensed therapist, trauma specialist, and TEDx speaker. We get into the nitty-gritty details of trauma, what it really means if you are traumatized, and what to do to heal if that's the case. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked it, please leave a review. My team and I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Enjoy. Crystal, I'm going to start off with a basic question, but I I'm, I think many of us don't know the answer, which is what's affecting us so much. So according to you, what is trauma? Trauma. Oh, good question. So lots of different definitions. The way that I use it in my practice is trauma is the way that the brain perceives something that has happened to it which is usually something that's too much, too fast, too soon, or in the case of something like neglect, not enough. So emotional neglect can be a version of that as well. So trauma is the emotional reaction and the patterning and the interpretation that happens in the brain. It's not necessarily the event itself. So we can get into these debates around, should that be considered traumatic? There's not like a pre-approved list, right, of what could be considered traumatic. Uh, the way I like to really explain it to my clients is it's anything that's too much, too fast, too soon, or not enough, that it overwhelms your brain's coping capacities. And it causes us to chronically feel unsafe and repeat patterns because we're trying to deal with it. We're trying to process, we're trying to metabolize it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Going off of that, if you experience a traumatic situation, how do you go about it so you don't get PTSD? Because we talk about trauma, I think we, we, we focus a lot yeah. on how to heal from the, you know, from a trauma as a kid. But what do we do if we experience like something in the now or in the present moment? Mm-hmm. What can we do for ourselves to not get traumatized? Yeah, there's the, the way I think of when we talk about something that can be too much, too fast, too soon, we want to find safety, right? We want to be able to have safety as soon as possible and in response to what has happened. But, but when I talk about safety, cause it's part of the antidote, right? Part of the antidote to, to trauma is safety resource choice agency. Often when these things happen, we don't actually have choice. Um, so when you think about safety in your body, in your nervous system, it's not just the absence of threat. It's also the presence of resource. So there's a lot of research actually just from the PTSD perspective. One of the biggest things that can prevent you from actually getting PTSD, the cluster of symptoms that comes with PTSD is social support. So it's a lot of things. I would, I would say it's not just going to be social support, but after the thing happened, especially if it was a shock trauma, did you have a compassionate witness? Did you have someone that you could go to, to talk to about it? Um, I think of it as like, you know, if we were in a village and, um, sitting around a campfire and a tiger came at us, it may not necessarily become trauma if my whole village is there with me, protecting me, even though there was a threat. Um, I also had safety and I also had the presence of resource. And so it's going to be a unique combination of these things, how much you need of what, but social support is a big one. And then also allowing your body to discharge what it needs to discharge, especially, especially in the event of shock trauma, you know, you can kind of live with the stress and like the buzziness that comes with something that surprises your system. So that may be part of your therapy process. That might be part of, you know, down-regulating, helping your system to feel safe again. Um, Of course, social support. 
There's many, many ways to do it. But as far as the prevention piece, when it's just happened is, can you get yourself to safety? Can you help your body discharge what it needs to, if it needs to? Um, and can you find some social support? Can you find some people that, you know, and they really help your brain, like notice the cycle of where it starts to activate, but also help your brain to notice the cycle of deactivation as well. So something I ask people a lot is, when did you know the worst of it was over? And we want to help our brain understand that because when the limbic system's getting activated, the limbic being that survival part of the brain doesn't have a sense of time. It doesn't have a clock. So that's why when you have a PTSD trigger, it feels like it's all happening again in present day. So when we help the body to see and the brain to see, oh, the worst of it is over. This event is actually over. And we allow the body to deactivate in the way that it needs to, which is it can be a supported process, but it's also an organic process. So my guess is, you know, if you've ever been through something stressful or something overwhelming or traumatic, you kind of notice when your body starts to discharge and take care of itself on its own as well. So run me through a, a checklist that you would go through to see if you are actually traumatized, right? Because we have this this thing in culture that, that people kind of pass it off or negate it. Like, oh, it wasn't trauma. It wasn't anything, right? It's, it was too small or it wasn't anything, right? It's like, there's, I understand the gratitude piece in our minds. Like we should be grateful for everything and not look back and complain. But <laughs> what if that actually caused some serious trauma on us? So what, what's the checklist you have for people to, to listen to or check on themselves with as to if something actually became trauma or is trauma? Yeah. I, isn't that funny? It's like such a thing where we're like, Oh, but I should be grateful. Like it does, like it negates the thing that happened or the, the multiple things that have happened. Um, the first thing I look for, I don't have a specific checklist. I suppose with PTSD, you, you could use what's in the DSM, right? You could use the, the cluster of symptoms that comes with PTSD. There are a few somewhat, um, pertinent checklists for complex PTSD as well, where it's chronic and prolonged trauma. Um, one thing that I do start to look for first and foremost is patterns is, is there a pattern of behavior or a pattern of pain? And this chronic thing keeps coming up in your life that feels stuck. So things like, you know, I don't know why I keep dating the same abusive type of partner. Um, I just, I don't know. I've dated the same person over and over again. That's a pattern. Um, you know, behaviors like maybe falling into addiction. I know you've had, you know, you've shared some of your own story where it's like, okay, the addiction's the symptom, right? The addiction's not the problem. The addiction's the symptom of how our brain is trying its very best to heal and cope with the pain. Um, I really like how Gabor Mate talks about it as, you know, we sh instead of asking why the addiction, we should be asking why the pain. Um, and so the pattern can be in um, a, a literal pain that shows up for you, whether it's a body pain or an emotional pain that chronically repeats. And it can also be the, the interesting thing about trauma is there's the pain of the event. And then there's what we call the adaptive survival strategy that we use to deal with the event. So that's where I think of things like addiction or compulsions or um, I keep doing the same thing over and over again, even though I know it's not healthy for me. So we not only now are dealing with the wound itself, right? Trauma is an injury. And I really do see it as that it's an injury, which means it can heal. Um, but if you think about like the, the example I like to use is like a physical injury. If I am walking along and I, I don't know, get, um, into a, I get into a, a car accident, a, a car runs into me and I now have pieces of glass stuck in my arm. 
Um, in theory, your arm could still heal because we do have, our body has these natural capacities to heal. Um, but if there's still a piece of glass stuck in my arm, it's going to keep getting infected. It's going to be chronically inflamed. I might still be able to move it and use it, but it's not going to be functioning optimally. It's not going to feel as good as it could. So what we do with trauma work is hopefully if we can find it, sometimes we don't get to find the exact piece of glass, the core wound, so to speak. Sometimes we do. Um, is we want to look at what's getting in the way of the arm doing what it organically wants to do, which is heal. You know, you don't have to like, when you get a cut, you don't have to be like, okay, red blood cells, like, let me, (laughs) it just does it. If you give it the appropriate conditions, your arm is going to heal. But often there's this sort of like metaphorical glass stuck in there, right? And you're just like, what is this? Why, why is this not healing? And I keep, you know, it keeps getting stuck and my range of motion is limited. And that's where we lose a lot of vitality. So we do things to adapt to it, right? We might be really tender with this area. We might avoid using it. Um, and that's all fine and good, except that our life becomes a little narrower. This vitality becomes limited because we have this literal piece of glass stuck in our arm that we may or may not be aware of. So hopefully, um, we can not only look at the wound and say, Oh, Hey, there's this thing stuck in it. You know, let's, let's get rid of the obstacle of healing. Um, and also look at what are some of the adaptations that you've been doing to cope with this. And chances are, once we remove the glass, those strategies become easier to deal with and they become maybe even unnecessary, um, Mm -hmm. down the line. Yeah. My, my take on whether something's trauma is if objectively the situation in front of you is triggering you in a way it doesn't match it. Right. So if, if I, Mm -hmm. you know, get a a text, so sorry, if I text a significant other uh, and they don't answer in, in an hour, and I'm just like, feel like I'm freaking out and overwhelmed. That doesn't, that doesn't match the objective <laughs> mm-hmm. reality, right? Or if, if someone yes. does something minor to you and the, and the volume of your reaction gets, gets so loud, that to me is an invitation to be like, okay, something's happening here. Mm-hmm. Something from my past is coming up. And that's been my, my, my gauge. Time traveling. Of, of going back. Okay. This, this is reminding <laughs> me of, of in that moment. And when we're there mm. in the past, I would try and, you know, cause I, I have a, intellectual person so i'd go about in that moment just trying to think more out of it to get super pensive and analytical so what's going on and then that was a trauma response i'd love for you to go into that now of how a lot of people use their intellect to analyze their pain how that's a trauma response oh such a good point yeah i love how you point that out one that it feels like the reaction is bigger it's just not merited right like and we can feel ourselves time traveling i'm either worrying about the future or I'm stuck in the past. And I feel like, oh my gosh, I'm five years old and I'm being abandoned again. Um, the intellectualizing piece, man, that I resonate so hard with that because it's still something I go to. Like it's still something, the beauty of somatic work, which is some of the work that I do now, um, is it's still therapy. They're still talking in it. There's thoughts are included. Um, but we also include the body in the conversation. And I think intellectualizing on the one hand, there's nothing wrong with it. Right. I mean, I think if you're a curious person, my guess is like, if you wanted to learn about what was going on within you, being able to read and listen to podcasts and watch videos was helpful. Like I know for me, um, I literally changed my entire life to become a therapist because I was already reading these personal growth books for fun. So it really fed that part of my brain. 
and helped me to kind of start learning and moving in the direction that I wanted to go. And the flip side of that is when we talk about somatic work and healing trauma in the body, um, we're talking more about this felt sense. So I hear people say all the time, like, I know, I know I'm valuable. I know I'm worthy. I know I'm lovable. I know I'm a good person, but I just don't feel like it. I don't feel confident. I don't feel worthy or valuable. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the felt sense that we're talking about, um, where we have to take a look and we have to include the body in the conversation because intellectualizing only gets you so far. And it's sometimes even a way to stay out of the body, right? It's just, it's another way of keeping kind of what might feel like a safer distance. But to be fair, I think we also glorify that. I think most of our most of what I use, you know, prior to becoming a therapist, well, still as a therapist, most of what we use in day-to-day life is the thinking channel. Like I think Mm -hmm. of it as if you could like change the channels on TV, right? Most of us are very familiar with our thinking channel, um, our intellectualizing channel. We like to make meaning. We like to connect dots. We like to problem solve. And we need this. We need this probably at work. We need this in many, many areas of our lives. But there's all these other channels um, in somatic experiencing that even have a kind of like an acronym. It's called CYBAM. Have you ever heard of CYBAM? Has this ever come up in no. any of your interviews? Okay. Um, so it stands for, um, I, might, I might even get it wrong. I want to say it's sen- sensation is the S. Um, image is another channel. Behavior is another channel or urges or impulses. A is for affect or mood and M is for meaning. So what meaning am I making out of this? So Mm. meaning is more of the thinking channel and that's the one that we use a lot. Um, But what about sensations? What about images? What about behaviors and urges? What about mood? What, What emotions are coming up? And so we just lose so much data, right? It's like you have your body is this machine taking in raw data, not a machine. It's kind of like a machine, but it takes in all this raw data all the time. And when we're only focused on the meaning making or the intellectualizing, we're just missing out on so much information. Um, so I try to, I try to normalize it, especially with my really thinky people, myself included, as your emotions are signals. Your sensations are signals. The images, the memories, the urges, they're all just signals about your experience. Um, and can we take that and be curious about that rather than going, oh, well, I think I feel this way because blah, 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 blah. You know, it's like that automatically takes us out of what our body might be trying to process or what our body might be bringing to our attention because we just... We want to know. And I think we're curious beings. I think this is a wonderful thing. Um, I just like to practice the other channels too, if if people are open to it. Yeah, I think one of the hardest places for people to be, myself included, was what you what you alluded to was um, feeling thinking of yourself differently than you feel. Like that, that's the way I put it. Like if you if you perceive yourself to be a certain way, you don't feel that way you feel like a fraud. You feel like an imposter. You, that's what imposter mm. syndrome is, right? Like you, you, mm. you like, you mm. feel like you think you are something you don't feel like. So in my journey, I was, I kind of mastered my mindset, right? My, my, my mind, even though I was fighting my, my, my mind all day, like I had control of it, but I just felt like my old self. I felt, ang- I felt all these feelings I just ignored. And then once I started doing mm. somatic, somatic healing, the bridge closed. The, my, my mind and body are, mm. are, are, are the same now. Was that, how was your journey with that in your experience? So how did you go from, um, did you have a similar experience in, in thinking you were a certain mm-hmm. way and not feeling it? And how did you bridge that gap? And how can branching off, how can people start bridging, bridging that gap? Uh, yeah. Thanks for sharing that too. Just and normalizing that, right? Because again, it's so, 
it's the channel that's praised the most. It's the channel that we use the most in school. It's the channel that um, is just our default for so many of us. I really struggled with this as well. Um, you know, in, I mean, I came from an, a background in journalism. So I worked in news, which was all about facts, <laughs> facts. I mean, we can hold, we can say that loosely, but it's all about, um, putting together stories in a two minute package and, you know, straight to the point. And it's all about that. It's all about the intellectual, factual research part of the brain, um, and so for me, and I, interestingly enough, going into news, I think was, was part of this, um, dissonance that you describe where on the one hand, I was like, yeah, I can do that. I'm, I'm confident. I can talk to people. Yeah. I'll go in front of the camera, like whatever. Yeah. I, I can, I got this. There was this level of uh, almost like surface level confidence that, um, I had enough to get me through. And on a very deep, deep rooted level, that was not there. It was, I think, even a way, looking back on it, a way to feel more important, right? So there was this dissonance of, I think I'm important and special and doing good things with my life and valuable as a human. But there was a strong part of me that did not believe that. So one of my adaptive survival strategies was, okay, well, I'll make myself needed. I'll make myself important. I'll make myself a pillar in the community where I'm interacting with people. And, and I really did enjoy that part, interviewing people. And, um, and so I didn't realize for a long time that that could have been one of my adaptive survival strategies. And I really do call them adaptive because I think that was a way that my brain was searching for how to make my life meaningful and how to feel good about myself. When, when I really got into somatic work, um, and relational attachment work, I realized there was this deep-rooted self-hatred that kind of scared the crap out of me. I had no idea it was there. If you would have asked me um, how I would describe myself, I probably would have been like, yeah, confident, outgoing, I'm good. <laughs> I just have no idea. But I do think the body keeps a score, right? The body never lies. And I was having a lot of imposter syndrome. Um, I never felt, never, I wouldn't say never. I very rarely felt connected to myself. I had a lot of trouble um, just slowing down, something I'm still working on. I had a lot of trouble enjoying my life. Um, there's this thing in one of the types of tra uh, trauma therapy that I'm trained in called NARM. Uh, we call it positive affect tolerance. So positive affect, meaning pleasurable emotions. <laughs> like when you have a lot of trauma, it's hard to feel joy and it's hard to feel pleasure. And if you do get a little glimpse of it, you don't trust it because there's been enough experiences probably where that hasn't been safe to actually feel joy. I think Brene Brown calls it foreboding joy is sort of, you know, her piece of this. Um, so I just was not happy and I started to get really sick. Um, I was in really unhealthy relationships. My body started to kind of give out. Um, and so my response to that was to do more and work harder and push harder and learn more. And, and eventually, you know, I reached a point where I had to really pause, get curious and go, okay, what is this? Like, what am I doing here? Why do I feel so crappy all the time? Um, and I think that's the first step, you know, to answer that piece of the question when, when you start noticing your body giving you signals that this doesn't feel good, um, our job is to be curious. Our job is to pause and pay attention. 
and the curiosity is, is the first part of that bridge between looking at what's driving this. What makes sense about this? What makes sense about me working myself to death? What makes sense about me trying to do all the things, even though it doesn't feel good in my system? If we can look at what's right about this pattern, usually we'll start to get some clues. You know, we can start looking at, oh, okay, maybe this is helping me avoid something. Maybe this is helping me reduce pain. At the end of the day, your brain's number one job is to keep you alive, right? So it's just doing that in the best way it knows how. And in my brain, um, going, 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 working, 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 um, being busy all the time was what felt like survival, (laughs) what felt like safety, even though it wasn't, wasn't sustainable. What, what wounding do you think unconsciously was motivating you to be that news anchor who was on it all the time? Right. Cause I'm assuming like, um, the Mm -hmm. motivation you have now to do what you do to be a healer, to be a therapist must come from a different place or the same place. I'm just curious as to what, How's that changed? Like what, what used to motivate you to do what you do? How has it shifted to where you're at now? Mm, yeah. So there's still, there's a lot of pieces to that, that I think I'm still uncovering, but on a most basic level, um, I really think of the way that I came into the world. Um, so I was the product of an affair and was really not supposed to be here. I was in an accident. Mm. Um, and really, I wasn't wanted, um, at least on some people's sides, not on my biological father's side. Um, and so I do think that coming into the world in that, and I was born in Egypt as well. So there was a lot of, in the eighties, there was a lot going on, um, a lot of uprisings, a lot of unrest. Um, so I believe personally that it's been a combination of generational trauma. I'm Indonesian American. And, um, there's a long lineage of trauma on my mom's side. Um, and probably my dad's, my bio dad's, I'm I'm not sure though. Um, and so I do believe coming into the world, I can imagine my mom feeling a lot of shame carrying me. Um, and even, even though she chose to keep me obviously. So I do think I came into the world with a lot of shame already attached to my existence. I had this really heavy, heavy existential shame that I had no idea existed. I thought I was just fine for the longest time. Um, but eventually I found out and everything clicked. And at the time I was 19, I didn't really, um, do much with it. I was like, well, that sucks, but I guess I'm lucky. I should be grateful. I still got a family. I still got, to go to college. And, you know, I did have a lot of wonderful resources. Um, it didn't really, for me, it didn't really make sense until I started to see it in my adult relationships. And then I kind of was like, Oh, okay. I don't know how to be in healthy partnerships. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that feels like. I didn't have a lot of information and role modeling around that growing up. Um, and I was abandoned by my bio dad. So, um, I believe that coming into the world, there was just already so much that felt it was working against me. And so my sort of version of this, I believe on some level turned into, okay, well, if I'm not going to be wanted, then I'm going to make myself needed. Um, Mm. and so I became a giver, a caretaker, 
overdoer, overachiever, perfectionist. If I can just be good enough and perfect enough, then, um, then I'll be okay. And this did not come to me until way, way, way later in life. But I think that was, that was learning that, finding that out, um, talking to my mom about it and starting to uncover my birth story and what was going on as I came into the world. I really believe that that can impact the way that your brain develops, right? Because what's, what's missing, what's missing when, um, you come into the world under those types of circumstances. And I believe that can cause trauma, right? It's not just too much, too fast, too soon. It's also not enough. So was there enough, um, emotional attunement? Was there enough? Um, maybe, but probably not <laughs> based on my symptoms. Probably not. Where you are now, do you, do you feel wanted right now in your life? Are you at a place right now mm-hmm. you can feel like I feel wanted? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that, um, I'm wanted by myself. Like mm. I, I want to be here and I enjoy myself. Um, that's been the biggest, that's been probably one of the most healing pieces is I like myself, <laughs> which is so fun to be in a place where that feels true. Um, and I, I did eventually, I mean, I just got married last year and I have a lovely husband. I finally, you know, was able to get out of my own way and, and form healthy relationships. And I have wonderful friendships and, um, even within my family, I've been, I wouldn't say it's been, um, <laughs> talked about. Um, I'm probably the black sheep that wants to know the truth about things and, and wants to shift things. Um, but I think the work that I've done to grieve what I didn't have and how different things could have been and also what I can do now for myself has made me genuinely better able to appreciate what I do have. So what's interesting is the gratitude on this side of it, when you're on the healing path and you're in a better place where you just are secure in yourself, more secure. I'm certainly not a hundred percent all the time there, but is it's actually more of a genuine gratitude where now I'm like, you know what? I can genuinely say, um, this is what my family of origin can offer. It's not what I needed at the time. And it's not the love that would have really helped me thrive sooner. Um, but this is what's on offer and I'm okay with that. I don't need that from them anymore. So I can have more authentic relationships and I also have better boundaries, you know? So I also know where I, I, I need to protect myself and protect my energy. Um, and there's still, I mean, there's still a lot that I'm uncovering, you know, just as a, as a woman, as a brown person, um, there's, there's plenty in this world that tells me I shouldn't be here and that tells me I don't belong. And so continuing to work on belonging to myself and knowing that that's enough and that that's worthwhile while again, a work in progress is, yeah, I really do. Yeah. Thanks for asking that too. I don't know if I've ever said that out loud or no one's ever asked me before. Like, are you in a place where you feel wanted? And truthfully, like, yeah, I kind of just want myself. I want myself to be here and I want, I want her to be okay. Yeah. I ask because I, I share the same thing, right? I ask myself that question yeah. sometimes. Yeah. And I get, I yeah. still get no, no sometimes, but it's, it's a lot better. Um, so, so take me yeah. through your, your relational journey through with relationships, right? Cause if you have you know, a severe abandonment wound from, you know, your, your father. Now mm-hmm. you're in a healthy marriage. Take me, I want to know all the details, you know, good and bad of how you actually got to a place where you, you healed that. Cause I have a similar 
abandonment wound and not I wasn't left by yes. abandoned my parent, but it just I know how this this sounds a little insane, but the, the most vicious triggers of experience are abandonment wounds. It just it really is something primal. Yes. So how, how how did you go about healing that? What was that journey like for you through relationships? You're so right. It's that that abandonment piece, it does feel life or death because it is at one point it was life or death, right? Like, I don't think it's a coincidence when people struggle with this. Um, I was reading the other day about how, as we are, we are mammals, right? We evolved mammals. Um, animals are born with the most important survival skill that they're going to need. So giraffes are just like, boom, out of the womb. They're like wobbling around, you know, a little baby deer, same thing. They are born with the ability to walk and they'll be running within like a day. Um, humans, we can't do much. We are born first and foremost with the ability to cry. And that is our greatest survival tool as an infant, because we literally have to hope and depend on the fact that somebody is going to meet us and attune to us when we cry. So that can feel a little scary and you kind of just get what you get. You know, none of us got to choose the cards we were dealt. Um, so for me, I'm still kind of learning about what the first few years of life looked like. Um, I was always called a crybaby in my family. So I can guess, and I remember growing up with that for a long time. And I started to kind of shut myself down a lot. Um, that I was the sensitive one. I was a crybaby. I had too many needs. So I just really learned like, don't have any needs, be small, just be liked, be compliant. And then, and then people will want to be around you. Um, so that was the first like 30 years of my life. Like, I mean, there were moments, you know, where things got better. Um, but it was, and it worked well for news, right? Cause news and I hosted a morning show. So it was a talk show and your whole thing is to be likable. It's like, just be smiley and surface level enough that people like you. Um, so I did that and I did that for a really, really long time. Um, I was in a few abusive relationships that got pretty intense, um, mostly emotionally and psychologically abusive. How long, how long do you stay, stay in those? Oh God, too long. The first, so I really lucked out in that my first boyfriend ever was lovely. He was a saint and we are still friends today and he's married with three kids. And I got really lucky with him because I think that set me up for a little bit more success. I think I'd still be in the toxic ones right now if it weren't for having a little bit of that role modeling. Mm. Um, but you know, we were kids, we were in high school. It was a totally codependent thing. I was, I was the one who was kind of crappy in that one. I was just so emotionally dysregulated and jealous and couldn't trust him. And I'm like, why am I like this? You know? And he was so patient and kind and, um, just didn't work out. I was too chaotic. Um, so then I went on to pursue a modeling career, which like, why not? Right. Like, let's just throw international travel, just full access to drugs and parties. Like, just let's do that. Like, you know, I was like, yeah, let's try that. So it was this really interesting dichotomy of like during the school year. So I was still in college at this time. I was getting my degree in film and media and during the school year in college, I would be this straight A student, perfectionist, really high achiever. And then for three months, I would do these modeling contracts over the summer. And I would just like 
toss all of that to the wind. I would just, I was still doing school. I wasn't flunking out, but I was just like partying and meeting new people and trying to navigate what I thought um, relationships and dating look like, feel like. Um, But of course they never went anywhere because these were like, you know, I'd be living in Hong Kong for three months and like what like, what am I going to do there? Am I going to meet my husband there for a three month, like modeling contract? No. Um, so I ended up to answer your question. Sorry. I'm just now realizing you asked me how long, um, I ended up in the first one was three years over three years. That was, um, really, no, I guess that was the second one. The first one was about a year. Then the second one was three years. And then the last one that I was in where there was more of the I would say escalatory abuse where it was starting to become physical. That one lasted a year and a half. Um, so I had a good chunk and in between there were sort of these like, I don't know, like just meh relationships that weren't terrible and they weren't dangerous, but I was still doing the playing it small thing. So years and years. What do you think in you led to the Tolerance is a tricky word, but what led you to be in that for so long? Yeah. So like just, just, what was the mm. what were the mechanisms you just tolerated yeah. in that kind of and not just running away? Hey there, I'm going to give you a break to digest all of this amazing information. And in this break, if you like what you're listening to, please rate and review the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, it's that... That low self-worth, truly. I remember thinking, um, especially with the first couple, um, at least they weren't hitting me. That was sort of my um, my bar, I guess, for good treatment was, well, they weren't hitting me. So who am I to complain? I felt at that time, I was just so lucky that anyone wanted to be around me hmm. that I just needed to deal with it, you know, and it, it would get reinforced a lot. Right. So in relationships, in a healthy relationship, you can ask for a need or you can say, Hey, that doesn't feel good. And a safe person is going to be like, okay, noted, like, yes, let's, let's figure something out. Um, in these unhealthy dynamics, you'll say, Hey, that doesn't feel good. And they'll say, well, you're too sensitive or like, why are you crying? You're such a baby. So it really just, kind of reinforced a lot of the messages I had grown up with. And so then I started to believe, well, then I just need to have fewer needs. Like this is a me problem, right? Um, That I'm the one with trust issues. So I really think when you don't like yourself, you just pop with a lot. You're just like, well, I guess this is better than, you know, it's like crumbs. It's like, you'll, you'll accept crumbs because that's what feels like that's what's on offer. And that's what you deserve in a way. But again, on a what's weird is on a cognitive level, if you would have told me this at that time, I wouldn't have bought it. I would have been like, I know I deserve better, but then I would stay in the relationship for three more years. So it was like, what, what is happening? And it took a while. It took a while for me to, um, start reading, start learning about attachment, uh, going to therapy, listening to my body. I mean, my body actually started screaming at me. So I kind of had to, um, that's when I started to go, Oh, maybe I don't like myself. <laughs> like maybe that's why these relationships feel like home, um, is because at home, this is what I needed to do to be okay, to be safe enough. Have you forgiven yourself and lost the shame about those relationships? Mm. Yeah. 
You know, the, 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 the way the shame shows up now. So to answer that, yes, I do think the shame associated with that, knowing that it was never me. I always like to say, you know, the, the trauma is not your fault. The healing is your responsibility. Yeah. Um, so I didn't get to pick that, you know, I didn't get to pick exactly how my nervous system was going to pattern and how it was going to form and how it was going to learn to relate to people. Uh, I think around those relationships, there's been a lot of, of processing, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of, and I would even say just like acceptance, you know, like, I'm kind of like, Oh, okay. Like that makes sense. Why, why you would have done that, why you would have dealt, dealt with so much. The way the shame comes up now is when I still have PTSD triggers. Um, so I know there's still some pieces that are unprocessed. Um, the way it comes up now is more in very rarely, very, way better than it used to be. I used to be in shame spirals like all the time. Um, now it comes up more when I do feel a sense of distrust towards my partner where I'll be like, who just texted him? <laughs> That's mm-hmm. a woman's name. Who's that? Um, and I had one the other day that I felt so terrible and I'm still, I'm still like, oh man, that there it is. My partner who is just wonderful. Um, he, we're coming up on our one year anniversary. So I don't know, like for your one year marriage anniversary, you it's paper, right? Like you, you make something out of paper. Um, we were checking the mail the other night and there was a package for him and I'm so, I still have these hypervigilant parts. So from being cheated on for years, like, you know, my brain is like, what's that? <laughs> I know <laughs> if someone's hiding something. Um, and that's been a part of my life forever. Like my, my, even my, um, yeah, my previous partners have my, my really wonderful high school boyfriend used to joke, like, I can't surprise you. Like you were impossible to surprise. Cause I just figure things out. Um, so we were checking the mail the other night and, uh, he had a package and we normally, if we have packages, we'll just leave them on the table or like, you know, sometimes I'll open it right there. Sometimes I won't I'll go out for something like a skin cream or something. And he had this package and I was like, Oh, it's for you. I wonder what this is. And I, I didn't recognize where it was from. It wasn't from Amazon. And like my spidey senses started to creep up and I was like, Oh my God, what is this? What did he order? What is this? Like first thought, probably an anniversary present. Like, that's probably why he's being weird about it. Cause he like, you know, kind of like put it aside, didn't open it. And then I was like, what, what is that? Like normally he'll be like, oh, my book came in the mail or something, you know, we're so transparent with each other. And I had a full blown, I have not had a, a panic episode in years. I, cause I, I had this whole, oh my God, he's never given me any reason. And, but you know, we just bought this beautiful house. We just, we have this dog. We like, I full blown spiraled and went into a, this is it. This is, this is the moment. This is the shoe dropping. This is it happening. Um, the difference is I, I noticed that I knew exactly what it was. I had the thought, um, it's probably an anniversary present. He's that's probably why he's hiding it. Um, but I just couldn't, couldn't quite pull myself out of it. And so the shame came up around that where it was like, Crystal, come on. Like you, like, you know what this is, you know, this person, you can get yourself out of this. But that night I couldn't. So for whatever reason, probably all the things happening in my practice in the world, there was just all, all my capacity was already right. pretty like ugh, to begin with. And so that day I couldn't pull myself out of it. So I, I went to him and I was just really 
honest. I was like, Hey, I'm having these thoughts about, um, the package. I'm, my brain is telling me that you're hiding something. And he was like, I can't surprise you. He was like, do you want to know what it is? And I was like, is it a gift for me? He was like, yeah, it's an anniversary gift. <laughs> he was like, do you want to just open it? And I was like, no, I'm sorry. I'm the worst. So that took a minute to get out of. So the, they still come up, you know, but they're not, they're not the way they used to be. And I have a safe person now. I appreciate you sharing that. I have the same experience. I think it's, it can be tough when you identify as, you know, a healed person or a therapist or a coach and you have these moments. What I realized is that the way I've lost shame about it is that I, if that happened to me, I just say what you mm-hmm. did eventually to him immediately. I, I wouldn't, I would not label mm-hmm. it like a j- jealous way or like, what the fuck? I'd be like, I'm having yes. this feeling like, you know, I'm sorry to be annoying, but you know, this just reminds me of this, this time very nonchalantly. Can you just reassure me real quick? Um, and yep. it, it works. And, and I had the same, an ex partner of mine had the same thing. And it just, I'd, I'd immediately, no judgment, be like, yeah, no problem. Here, here's the reassurement, reassuring. Um, and I think that's yeah. such a normal thing that we shame ourselves into not wanting to do, right? Like if we have, <sighs> no, if we, if we grew up in a war zone or had emotional deep issues our whole life, that of course we're going to react that way. And if we do it in, in a, in a charming, non, you know, blaming way, it's pretty easy yes. for to deal with. And if someone, if you're with someone who can't do that and, and shames you for that and gets hard on you for that, they're not the right person. So, you know, maybe it's time to just, just, just call it out fast and, and get that reassurance. It happens. It happens to me all, all the time. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a skill to be able to name that and to be able to express it tactfully. in, like you said, like a non-blaming way, right? Like, and, and again, if you have a safe person and my partner knows my history and he knows these things, I've had to ask him for reassurance before. Um, like it's all good, you know? And so that, that was something that lasted a few minutes versus hours or days. That was something yeah. that once I saw that, okay, whoa, my skills are not helping me. My mind is starting to spiral. I need to just go address this now. Um, and it's so much easier. It's so nice. And it reaffirms the safety, hopefully, yeah. if you're getting that. Do you ever find it hard to tolerate peace in a relationship because i've had the experience where mm-hmm. like I'll, I'll see myself in the past falling out of love the more peaceful it gets and that sounds mm. crazy but it's an experience for people who are used to drama all the time and then when some <laughs> issue some issue would occur like the my part my partner or someone i was with would you know cause some drama or be annoying in some way or dramatic i would then feel into it again so have you dealt with that experience, oh. like be, being able to tolerate, tolerate peace gracefully without needing yeah. drama and issues to feel loved? Oh my God. Yes. Um, that was the thing that would get me into these unhealthy relationships to begin with. Right. It's because it was a roller coaster. That's part of what keeps you hooked is like the repair repair. I, I use repair in quotes because it usually was not an actual repair. It was just like, oh, we're, we're less dramatic now. <laughs> like we're on a, a plateau. Um, yeah. So I've come a long way with that piece. Thankfully. Um, I don't think I would have gotten married if, um, if I didn't feel really solid in that piece, it took, unfortunately, a few of these really terrible relationships for my system to crave peace. I actually got to a point where I wanted to be alone. Um, I think Emma Watson called it self-partnered and she used that phrase. And I was like, that's it. That's going to be me. It's going to be great. I'm going to have dogs and I'm going to have friends and I'll have a village. Um, so after my last really toxic one, I, I just was like, I really 
myself. And if this is what it takes for me to feel peace, then that's what I'm going to do. So then of course I met my husband. (laughs) And so, and then I had a little, because he was so safe, he is so safe. Um, my system actually did not like, didn't tolerate that well. Um, so I had to work very hard in my therapy, in my, um, self-regulation skills, self-soothing skills, reality testing, somatic work, EMDR, um, to stay level and to be able to tolerate the safety and not see. So sometimes with these really, um, rough abandonment attachment wounds, there can be a sense of like, this is boring. Um, and so we need to be able to see, is it boring or is it peaceful? You know, and also there's not, not that there's anything wrong with boring. Like I actually really like boring. Um, but it took a while for my system to start calibrating that this is what a relationship could be. And then it could just be peaceful and wonderful. And we've never had, I mean, we'll see, but we've never had a fight. We've, we've had conflict. We've had healthy conflict. We've had disagreements. We've had conversations. Um, and we've had brutal, you know, honesty with each other, but we've never had a fight. We've never gotten aggressive with each other. We've never done that. So that's been an interesting piece. Um, how, how do you not turn a, a triggering conversation to a fight? That's a delicate art. How, how do you do that? It is. It is. Um, so in somatic experiencing, we have this, uh, this phrase or, or kind of a category of nervous system activation. It's called global high intensity activation. And this is a nervous system that is primed for needing chaos to feel okay, (laughs) needing chaos, needing intensity, needing, it's a system that is already ready. And so I highly resonated with this. My system is almost always braced for something. This is the piece I'm still working through. Um, so one being able to notice that, seeing if you resonate with that, right. When I hear when I see global high in my clients, it's often like type A personalities. I'm just high strong. I'm just always anxious. Um, high achievers, um, People in repeated relationships that are up and down and up and down, lots of dysregulation. I mean, lots of activation and lots of ups and downs, really high highs, really low lows. So global, just meaning the whole body, the whole system is lit up like a Christmas tree. The nervous system's just ready. It's ready for whatever the next threat is going to be. So the first piece is sort of acknowledging, seeing if maybe that's a factor, you know, is that a part of what's happening in your system? Do you feel like you're constantly bracing because you're constantly ready? for the worst case scenario. Um, and if that is, if that resonates, you know, which with trauma, it it often has very good reason to be there. When we're injured in a relational context, we also heal in a relational context. So we kind of have to dip our toe into this. You can't go from a super chaotic, intense relationship and expect to be able to just, Oh, you know, tomorrow find someone peaceful and chill and safe and be attracted to that or feel like you want that. Um, and so often the way that this, the first sort of safe, peaceful relationship for many people is often their therapist because it's just, it's a consistent person, but it doesn't have to be right. Can you find in your friendships? Can you find in your village in your support system? Is there someone who's just, just, regulating someone who, when you're around them, you feel calmer or more regulated or more uplifted. Um, and who are you around when you start to feel drained, 
when you feel unsafe, when you are judging or shaming yourself. So we all have people, places, and practices that lift us up and build us up. And we all have people, places, and practices that tear us down. And so we want to identify what are the things in my life? What am I, what do I have access to right now that is bringing me a sense of regulation and a sense of safety? The more we tap into that and what that actually is. So when I stepped away from news and when I stepped away from some of these relationships that I was in, I actually found like, you can kind of go back to childhood, right? Like what did little crystal like doing? She's, she's chill. She actually loves animals. She loves nature. She likes to collect rocks. (laughs) Like she's a really simple person. Um, but I had been disconnected from that for so long that I was like, I don't know. I like, I like go, go, go. I like news, which is another sign of global high, right? It's like, like if you're, if you like the chaos, if you're running towards the fire. Um, so, so first and foremost, you know, seeing is that, is that a part of your patterning? And if so, or if it's something else, if there's attachment wounding that, that creates this pattern, where do you have access to that piece already? Because the more your system, the more your brain starts to dip its toe into peace, the more that's going to feel normal, the more that's going to feel okay. And also notice your response to peace. You know, do you start, oh, okay, I'm doing something that I enjoy. I'm doing a creative project. And as I'm working on it, now I'm starting to feel activated because I'm not supposed to be doing this. I should be doing something else. I should be working on blah, blah, blah. Um, so we want to help the system go through its own little cycles of, of activation and deactivation until... Eventually, over time, when you do this in a safe, contained way with a safe person, if you need a person or within yourself, if you can do this for yourself and create a safe container for yourself, eventually the nervous system learns how to do this on its own. So in my case, when, like I said, I didn't go from an up and down roller coaster relationship to a really peaceful, nice one where I feel like I can be myself and authentic and I get to be an imperfect person. Um, I had to learn first in my friendships what, what is a safe relationship? What does it even feel like? Um, and I created my non-negotiables. So I have many of my clients do this, especially if they're struggling with relationships in particular, um, create a list of non-negotiables. And these are like the absolute no-goes of what you will not, what you will and will not tolerate. Um, and so once I got really clear on those, it was sort of a like, okay, I have these five things. And if my next partner isn't five out of five in meeting them, then it's a no. If it's a four out of five, then no, it's, you know, it has to be five out of five. That's the, that's the point of non-negotiables. Um, and eventually if you can start to dip your toe into what peace feels like and genuinely allow that to be a part of your experience, this is an oversimplification, right? Usually there's reasons why we don't feel okay with this. Um, so from without knowing like a specific situation without knowing, okay, well, what's driving that? Um, we can always start with what resources are available now. And most of us have something, you know, pets. If you, if you don't feel safe to connect with people yet, which is totally fine. I think this is why I love dogs so much, right? We always had dogs growing up. They were always a resource for me. It's okay. If you have so much people trauma, if you don't feel like you can trust people yet, if what you feel connected to is a tree, cool. Great. If you feel more safe and connected to a hamster or a dog or a pet fish, fine. That's what we're starting with, right? Like our job is to meet your system where it is. It's not to try to plunge you into deep, authentic, 
partnership before your system's ready for it, because then it's just going to pendulate back and and you're going to have some backlash anyway, right? Your system's going to resist it and it's going to go, nope, get me out of here. Um, so yeah, did that kind of answer your question? I'm trying to think of where, where I started with that. <laughs> got, got a little bit drawn out. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, do you, do you identify as an empath? I do. Yes. Um, empath, highly sensitive person. Um, My ask that is that um, I think it's a common experience that many empaths don't know how to set boundaries at all. Um, I'm curious as to if you agree and if you do, why is that the case? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. With If you identify as an empath, it can almost feel like there's too much coming in all at once and there's not enough boundary, not enough protection between you and the outside world and the data and the information and the stimulus from the outside world. Um, I think when, when we're raised in environments where boundaries aren't normalized and even encouraged and celebrated, we just learn to not have them. So if the safest way to exist in whatever system you were born into is to not have boundaries to maybe it's overgive or do too much or, uh, try to be everything for everyone. If that's the way that you get love, or if that's the way that you get attunement or some of your needs met in some way, then that's what you're going to do. Um, in, uh, in some of my trainings and some of the, the, therapy that I do, we talk about this concept of unmanaged empathy. Um, and thinking of there's empathy with boundaries. That is the distance at which I can love you and I can love me too. And then there's unmanaged empathy that kind of goes rogue and can even be a form of self-harm. It can be a form of self-betrayal and self-destruction where we just martyr ourselves for something that doesn't actually help us, but it might feel safer or more regulating or stabilizing or familiar in that moment. But long-term you lose yourself, right? I mean, long-term without boundaries, if you don't know what's me and what's not me, long-term you start to disconnect from yourself, um, which is again, a survival strategy. Um, just not one that feels good. So what I'm hearing you say, my own interpretation is that if you struggle, if you struggle so severely to feel safe, which is most empaths are so sensitive, they'll run to and cling on to whatever makes them feel safe, even if it's not the healthiest way to do it. So extending off that, if, if, if they depend on someone to make them feel safe, then they'll, they'll forgive that person for doing many things that, that infringe on their boundaries, right? Cause they need that person to feel mm-hmm. grounded. So they, they'll, they'll forgive yes. them for, for doing shitty things. How, how do they move away from that? Is it just, is it as simple as, is it taking responsibility for making yourself feel safe and not, not projecting that outwards? Like how, how do you go about that? How can you, feel strong enough to put boundaries on people that you depend on to feel safe, right? It's such a hard thing to do, to tell somebody deeply love you depend on, hey, I don't like when you do this, or hey, I'd appreciate it if if you wouldn't do this around me, or hey, when you do this, I can't be around you. How can we feel brave enough to do something like that? Mm, yeah, it's such an interesting thing to move from codependence to interdependence, right? So codependence being more of that enmeshed, I need you for my regulation. I need you for this versus interdependence. I'm a separate human. You're a separate human. We also have this relationship as well that we both contribute to and we take responsibility for. Um, so 
it's interesting when you really think about the desire to depend on someone in that way for your happiness or for your regulation is actually about you getting your needs met. It it often comes out as like, I just want them to be a better person. I just want them to be a better partner, you know, with a lot of, I don't love the word codependence, but you know, it communicates what we need. Um, you're actually in a way kind of objectifying that other person. And when I say objectifying, I don't mean necessarily in the sexual sense, although I guess that could be a piece, but when we make someone else responsible for our well-being, we're treating them like an object, like a substance or like a, you know, I'm going to take this pill and then feel better. And so usually that doesn't actually feel good either. Not only because one, I don't want to need this from this person a hundred percent of the time. I want to have enough security in my own system and enough stability and safety in my own system that I can do this for myself. And I have the option when I can't do that, that I have people I can go to, but I always call it, you know, it's your support system, not a support person. You can't put all of that on one person. That's not fair. Um, it can really quickly affect that relationship. Um, and so being able to develop a secure attachment with yourself. So what does is, what is a self-secure attachment mean? Yeah. So, so when you think about, you know, growing up as, as a developing brain and developing nervous system. The paradox of secure attachment is if I know, for example, my mother, if I know my mother is going to be there, she's going to be an anchor and she's always going to, not always, but she's going to attune to me enough that my nervous system feels safe. I will actually feel more adventurous. So I think of like a little kid riding their bike and looking back at their mom, right? If I look back and I'm like, oh, she's there. I'm more likely, and I know she's there. I'm used to her being there. I'm more likely to like right off into the sunset and like go explore the world. Cause I know she's there. I have a secure base at home, but if I'm not used to my mom being there or she's there sometimes she's there, not like not consistently, I'm going to keep glancing back. I'm going to keep going back. I'm going to keep going. Oh, is she there? Is she there? Are you looking? Are you watching? Are you looking? Um, and that can help that can make us feel more tethered. So now I'm super as a child, this is appropriate, right? As a, as a five-year-old, we need this as a seven-year-old first learning to ride a bike. This is appropriate. And we need this. When we have it consistently enough and consistently enough is a subjective thing, right? So some people call it the good enough mother, the good enough parent. There's not like a percentage that's perfect of how much your parent needs to attune to you for you to develop a healthy, secure attachment. I wish there was, but we're just too complex for that. But if you felt attuned to enough growing up and you felt safe enough and you had that secure attachment with one or both parents or another caregiver, um, you're more likely to have that within yourself. Because we learn through what's mirrored to us. And there's actually a part of this, the, um, we have this thing called the vagus nerve. It's the longest nerve in the body. And the, the ventral vagus part of this system is what we call safe and social. That part of this doesn't form unless we have enough attunement. It's not that it doesn't form. It doesn't fully develop if we don't have enough attunement. So there are literal parts of our brain that their sole purpose is to learn how to be in relationship with other people. And it's even involved with our facial muscles, right? This is how we signal to each other, whether you're happy, whether you're sad, whether, you know, do you need me to comfort you? Are you okay? Um, 
So that part of the brain doesn't fully develop if we don't, if it doesn't get stimulated enough, if it doesn't get attuned to enough. This is why babies in orphanages die, even when they have enough food, water, and shelter, right? If they're not held enough and they're not stimulated enough, that ventral vagal system is not stimulated enough, they die. We literally need that. So if you had that growing up and you had enough of that, you're, you're probably already going to have that secure attachment within yourself. You're going to know that it's okay because, and it doesn't, it, it won't be your mom anymore, right? But as you grow into an adult, it'll be yourself. I don't need to keep looking back at my mom. I'm going to have an internal sense of trust that I've got this. I, and, and, and if I feel overwhelmed, I know who I can go to for help with this. And that might be your mom still, or it might be someone else, you know, it might be, uh, friendships. So when we don't have this growing up, Again, we first hopefully can form it within our community. I think a, a safe friendship is worth its weight in gold. I know when I was coming out of some of my stuff, even a, a friend or an acquaintance showing me empathy had such an impact on me because I had had so little in my relationships that even someone saying, oh my God, Crystal, that sounds so awful and that sounds so hard would bring me to tears because somebody was just validating my experience. And so when you start to tap into that felt sense of, oh, this is what it's like to be seen and to be heard, we can start doing that for ourselves. So one of the ways I like to do this um, is with inner child work or reparenting work um, and really looking at, I mean, I'll have clients even bring in like a photo of themselves at like three years old, you know, and we'll just connect with her. So I have little C. Um, and what do you like about her? What is she like? And we just connect with how wonderful and sweet she is. And the thing I tell people when they're really struggling to connect with that part, because sometimes people will bring their, their baby pictures in and they'll be like, I hate this kid. And it's just like, it guts me. Right. When they're like, I have no compassion. This, he sucks. Um, is especially if they're a parent, sometimes this is easier to access. If you're a parent, can you imagine going to a hospital birthing unit where there's all the little newborns right in the room? And they're all bundled up and they're all laying there and sleeping and whatever. And you're looking at these babies. Can you imagine as an adult pointing to one of them and going, that one, that one's not worthy. That one doesn't deserve to be here. That one sucks. And I would imagine most people would say, no, I cannot imagine this child not deserving all the love and all the care in the world. So if we can start to develop you were a baby at one point, right? <laughs> like we all were. That was you at one point. If we can start to develop a compassionate relationship with our younger selves, sometimes that can be an opening, but everyone's system is different. Sometimes even starting to feel the worthiness through a safe friendship, a safe uh, therapeutic relationship, um, starting to feel that safety in any kind of relationship can be what moves us from feeling ungrounded and insecure and all over the place and unworthy to starting to be able to go, no, actually I'm like, I'm a kind of a good person. And I think somebody could really appreciate that. So again, it's some, some of it can be in present day, the social support. Also, I really like to do some of the inner reparenting work, um, somatic work as well. If there is a specific trauma or traumas keeping it stuck. So sometimes we need to process those too. What's the, it's a delicate line. What's a line between making it your problem, your responsibility to create safety in yourself and then going out for someone to give it to you or help you create it? What's that line? Like, when do you, when should you be like, Hey, you know mm. what? I'm going to do it for myself or, Hey, you know what? I'm going to ask my friend to do it. What's that line of like, 
overusing or needing our friend to make us feel safe? And when is it actually useful? Like, how do we dance that line? It's a hard one in my experience. I've gone from hyper-dependence to hyper-independence. And now, which means I I used to only be able to feel safe if I was with my friends or or telling my issues to them. And then I could only feel uh, safe by being fully pulled back and not talking to anyone. And now I'm finding some middle ground. I'm trying to figure out what the answer is to that. So what what is your answer to that? How do you develop a, a... a cool, safe line in that, in that duality? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a great question. And, and again, another skill. Um, I think to be in an authentic relationship with someone, it can't be truly authentic if there isn't a safe no. There has to be an authentic yes and an authentic safe no as well to opt out in any relationship. So otherwise, what we're working with is um, forcing and compliance. And that's not agency. That's not choice. So every system is different. I know some couples, especially in romantic partnerships, right? I think this is where this this gets the most um, triggering and complicated, Um but even in friendships, I think at the, at the heart of the matter is consent and choice and agency. If you can ask someone, Hey, I'm spiraling right now. Do you have some time to chat on the phone? And you can text that to a friend or to your partner. And they're actually able to take time to sit with that and go, Oh my God. Yes, totally. Um, let me call you on my lunch break or yes, call me right now. I'm, I'm, I'm running some errands. So I might be a little distracted, but if that's okay with you and you want to call and vent, go for it. So I'm a big fan of asking for permission. And one, that protects me because I also think if someone just answers and they're always available and then they might be half distracted and that's not actually going to be regulating for me. But if somebody tells me, yes, I am available and here's what's going on, um, or here's what I can be available to and here's what I can't be available to, um, then I know my system knows, oh, okay. She only has about 20 minutes. She's, she's running to the grocery store and then she has to pick up her kids from school. Totally fine. And if I can then tune into my system and go, yeah, that would be helpful. Cool. I also get, yes, yes. Cool. Let's, let's chat. If it's a no, that also protects me because then I'm not going to feel misattuned to in a, a rushed 20 minute conversation that I'm like, are you even paying attention to me? And that, you know, might reinforce this sense of I'm not worthy. I'm not, I'm not important enough to listen to. So. And on a very, on a very basic level, asking, you can always ask, especially, you know, like we're, when you're an adult, this is the beauty of it, right? You get to ask, you don't have to mind read. Um, and this is where the support system comes into play as well, because if that one friend's not available, guess what? I don't need to put that on her. I need to know that there are going to be other people. I have other supports in place. This is part of my regular self-care practice, right? Um, whether that looks like therapy whether that looks like, okay, having someone that I know once a week or every other week, I'm going to be talking to about this, um, building on friendships, investing in friendships and in my partnership, also talking to my partner about what's okay and what's not and what I need. Sometimes, you know, I think there's a learning as well around being able to say, Hey, this is what I'm going through. Do you have some time to talk? I just need someone to listen. And 99% of the time, if they're available and that's a yes, and and they also know because there's enough safety in that relationship that they can say no, you're not going to weaponize it. You're not going to punish them for not being available. Um, it's a it's a skill set and it's certainly a practice. Yeah, where where my mind goes to, where I've come to is that it's a line between need, needing needing to be seen and needing to be fixed. 
um, that if, if you depend on someone to give you yeah. answers or to solve whatever you're going through, that it's a, it's a dependence. You're not, you're just outsourcing your own intuition, your own mm. ability to guide yourself. If you just, most of us want to be seen, right? That's, we think we want to be fixed. We just want to be seen, right? This, you, we think that I need to ask this person for the answer, what I do, all this stuff. But reality, real, in reality, we just want to speak vulnerably about what we feel and then have someone be like, Hey, you know what? I feel you. It, I, I'm with you. I, I, I can mm-hmm. empathize with you. That's all we need. I think that that's the line, right? For me is when I, when I go to someone needing fixing, that's probably coming from wounding. When I go to someone just wanting to be witnessed as me vulnerably, that's just humanness. Does that line make sense to you? Is that like a, a fair assertion? That's such a, yeah, love how you put that seen versus fixed, right? Cause you're not broken. None of us are broken. Our, our brains don't need fixing, right? We need healing. Um, we need compassion. We need community care. It, none of us are broken. Um, but, but like you said, right, when you, when you come from the place of needing to be fixed, it can feel really disempowering. And there is no, there is no answer. No one's going to fix that for you. No one's going to heal that for you. Um, but when you know what you need is to be seen in a safe, compassionate way, that's, most of the time I see you, I hear you. That makes sense. Um, there's a reason it, it sounds silly and simplified, but when we look at even the therapy process, the research is pretty clear while the modalities that you use, the trainings, the expertise is extremely important. One of the most important factors above all of that is actually the quality of the therapeutic relationship because that safe relationship can start to heal mm-hmm. all of those wounds, right? When you're just seen with that unconditional positive regard as a worthwhile human. Well, I just want to thank you for sharing everything, especially for your vulnerability. You're, you're, it's one thing to, to teach and to understand things, but then to help us learn through your experience. That's a, that's the beauty of it. I think that's why I do this, right? I think we don't like to be told things, how to do things a lot, but we like to be on the journey with someone who's healed themselves. So thank you for giving insight into that journey and, and just seeing the, the work you've done is amazing. Uh, where, where can people find you or work with you if they want to? Um, so my website is clwellnesskc.com. So um, those are for my, if, if you want to work with me in a therapeutic context, Kansas and Missouri residents. Um, but I'm also starting to offer more workshops because I'm finding that, um, you know, I get full and busy and I, I want to offer more options. So you can also find that on my website, clwellnesskc.com. And then I'm on Instagram. So feel free to follow me on Instagram. My name is spelled a little funny, C-R-Y-S-T-L-E-L-A-M-P-I-T-T. Um, and yeah, I'm trying to be a little more active. I feel like Lucas, you're, you're like, you're on it. You're, you're a way more regular poster and I'm (sighs) that that comes from trauma in me. So that's may not be great. So (laughs) is that one of your survival strategies? Yeah. I I, I like being validated and seen. So that's why I post. Maybe you're doing it right. Um, But but thank you again. I I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast as well as rate and review. Thank you for listening.